My name's Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful to be with you today opening up the word to 1 Peter. Uh, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know we've been in a series through 1 Peter. Uh, last week, we took a little break from that because of Sin Sunday, as Taylor told us, which was an awesome, awesome time. If you were with us, thank you again uh, for all, all you do, all you've done. Uh, and how you serve our community. This, this is a season where we get to display as the body of Christ that we have so much to give because of all that we've received, right? Because of God's gift of Jesus, we have so much to give and so much to offer in this, this season and every season really. But um, last week you all proved that this is a season of giving for us as a body of Christ. And many were touched by that, impacted by your generosity. The week before Sin Sunday, if you remember, we began this second chapter of First Peter. And I just want to do a short recap because it, it's important that we lay the foundation for where we are today in context. Because, you know, we, we break these up in three, four, five, six verse increments when we preach because we don't have enough time to really unpack all of it. But remember, the, these letters are written in its entirety. So you can't just pluck two or three verses and without the context of what's around it. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Marcus preached and, and he really let us have it about our malnutrition. Uh, he let, if you know what I'm talking about, if you remember, uh, he certainly let me have it. And it was a good type of challenge because it, you remember the statistics that he gave us. He said four out of 10 people, according to the American Bible Society, Four out of 10 people, four out, four out of 10 professing Christians said that they only read their Bible when they come to church. And then he said that two out of 10, according to the American Bible Society, so not according to Marcus, according to the study done by the American Bible Society, two out of 10, like 21% of people, only 21% of professing Christians only come to church once a month. So 40% only read their Bible when they're in church, 20% only come to church once a month. And then he hit me with this statement, if you remember. If you only ate when you went out to eat, how much, how malnourished would you be? And I think it's a good challenge for us today as we consider this text, we consider 1 Peter 2 and the beginning of it where, where Peter is saying, as you long for the pure spiritual milk, remember in verse 2, as you long for the, the pure spiritual milk that you need to grow up in maturity as a Christian, as you long for that milk. And then in verse 4 today where we pick it up, he says, as you come to him, as you come to him, longing for this pure spiritual milk, longing for his presence, longing for what he has to offer to help you become mature. As you come to him, Peter's speaking to Christians when he says, as you come to him, who is him? A living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
Look at verse five. You yourselves, Christians, like living stones. So, so you come to him a living stone and you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're gonna come back to those three things and spend some time there. Verse six, for as it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The cornerstone, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by men, has become a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense for those who rejected him, for those who don't believe in him. But for those who do believe in him, you, you've been, it's been made possible for you to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through him. And you've been made a holy priesthood. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. We see this contrast between believing and unbelieving. But before we get to that and begin to unpack it, I want to spend some time on that first phrase, as you come to him. And I'm going to move pretty quickly through this part. And then we're going to have some, some parts where you might want to take notes. And then we're going to have some parts that are really hard to think about at the end. Okay, that's kind of the framework. If you have a jacket, keep it on. I know it's chilly. If, you're, if you don't have a jacket, I've got one up here that I'm not wearing. So just come on up here and grab it. I'm not gonna be long, I'm moving, all right, I'm moving. As you come to him, as you come to him, come is actually here, the word come is a compound verb. So the, the, the root of it is the word come, but then the, the prefix is this word for toward or with, it's, it, it's this compound verb, come toward, come to, come with and it and it can be translated in this text to mean coming like actively coming like an, an active posture this, this isn't come once like as you come to him one time that's not what this says it's not talking about salvation in the sense of the the first time you came to him in saving faith and repentance that's that's not what this is this is an active continuous coming as you come to him. This word also is used elsewhere in scripture uh, for drawing near, drawing near to God, approaching him, coming toward him. And it's a continual coming. We see this, this, this same verb in Hebrews a few times. I'm going to point out two of them. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us with confidence draw near. That's the same verb there. Come to him. Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus. And this is similar language, the house of God. A great high priest is Christ. Verse 22, let us draw near, same verb, with a true heart and full assurance of faith 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As you come to him in this way, as you draw near with confidence, Peter says, as you desire him, as as you long for this pure spiritual milk, come in this way. And here's what we know about this desire. Here's what we know about this action from the Christian. You You don't come to him if you're not his. You don't, you don't come to him. You don't, you don't desire these things. He, he's not chosen and precious to you if you're not his. Remember last week's text in this context, I wanna read it again. Like newborn infants, Peter said, like newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk. You know, some of you got newborn infants in the room. They long for pure spiritual milk all night. <laughs> Dr. Joe Coppolino, I can't see him. He's here somewhere. He said he didn't sleep last night. There he is in his yellow. Man, you look good. He said, I didn't sleep at all last night. Longing for the pure spiritual milk. At the Christmas party we had for our church leadership team, uh, the, the goat of all things white elephant Christmas gifts, SK Mills brought a gift that was spiritual milk and cookies for someone to enjoy. It was actually not spiritual milk, it was real milk, but you know, it was labeled that and it was awesome. I love that, it's great. You had to be there, it was great. Longing for pure spiritual milk. You don't long for that spiritual milk unless you're his. But if you long for this pure spiritual milk, you will come to him. So in verse three, it talks about the the desire, right? We talked about that two weeks ago and I'm trying to recap it. And then in verse four, it talks about coming to him with this desire. Look at Psalm 36, seven and nine, seven through nine with me. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. I love that song we sang, come to the river, come to the river. It's, it's not just like, hopefully you're gonna get a little drop. No, it's the river of God that flows. It's unending, come to the river. There's SK with the baby, look at that. I just put it all together, there you are. Come to the river. Look what else the psalmist says, verse nine. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. For with you is the fountain of life. Verse eight, we're gonna go back and do it again and then we're gonna read verse nine. They feast on the abundance of your house. There's there's abundance to be feasted on in his house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? Listen to those words. This is about delight, not duty. And one of our main problems in the church, one of our main problems as Christians, I think, is we begin to see our Christianity through the lens of obligation rather than satisfaction or, or what we must do rather than what we get to do or, or duty rather than delight. Like it's a fountain 
for your enjoyment? Do, do we come to God expecting a fountain or do we come to God expecting a gavel that's going to hit us in the temple and put us down for a little while until we get back up and, and are repentant enough to move forward? This is real. This is two very different things. The psalmist is talking about delight. He's talking about enjoyment, fulfillment in the presence of God. I was struck by this this week as I was thinking about how the vast majority, I was just talking to Aunt Deb before we came in here today. You look great today. You're shining. You're... And she lost somebody very special to her this week. And I've been praying with her and we, I've been thinking a lot about her and and, and what she lost. And I was thinking about how the vast majority of people around us and in the world are without God. They cannot access the presence of God. So when everything falls apart, when somebody close to you takes their own life, when somebody close to you is diagnosed with cancer, when you lose your job, when your husband leaves you, and you don't have God, how hopeless, how much more hopeless can it get? And the majority of the world is in this state. They, they cannot go to the presence of God when they need him the most. They can't, they don't, they're looking for something. And in a room like this, this size, most likely there's some in here that, that are not able to access the presence of God. They're, they're, as the book of Ephesians talks about, Paul writes, they're without hope and without God in the world. They, they're separated, they're, they're, they're distant from him. By nature, children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, without hope and without God in the world, Paul writes. Most of the world is in that state. And at the end of it all, there is nothing worse. Hear me. At the end of it all, there is nothing worse than being without God. There's nothing worse than not being able to be in his presence. even just a moment in his presence when, when we're experiencing the feast, the abundance in his house. The, the psalmist in Psalm 84, you know this one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You don't know, you don't know that unless you've been in his courts and you're not gonna be in his courts unless you know him, unless you're his. You're not gonna be there unless Jesus is your redeemer. You're not gonna be there unless you've repented of your sins and trusted by faith in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Better is one day, one day, than a thousand elsewhere. As you come to him, let me rattle off a few things here. As you come to him, if you're thirsty, 
Come and drink. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37. Just write it down if you don't have time to flip there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I wish I could dive into the context of that. Study it later. The last day of the feast, the great day. What was happening there with the ceremony is awesome and I don't have time. So I want you to read that and study it later. This is what he said to him. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty? Come drink. And then when you drink of his living water, out of you will flow rivers of living water. If you're weary, come find rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, write it down. You don't have time to go there. Come to me. If you're hungry, Come and dine, come and feast. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever comes to me and eats the bread of my body, weird. The disciples were like, weird, don't say that. They're scared. That's what the disciples told him. Don't do that. Like, why are you saying that? Jesus said, I'm saying it because if they come to me in this way and they feast on me, they will never grow hungry again. Well, of course I'm gonna get hungry. I gotta have my carbs, you know? No, 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 not that kind of hungry. Spiritual fulfillment, satisfaction. Come to me, he says. And Peter describes him. Come, come to a living Stone, the cornerstone. Peter gives us uh, this picture here, this picture of, of uh, an ancient Roman construction site. In the ancient, ancient world, uh, they mostly built their structures out of stones. And they would begin by carving these stones and fashioning these stones off-site. And they built the blueprint and they cut the stones and they fashioned them all off-site. Like they got it all prepared so that when they brought them to the site, they started with the cornerstone, which determined the direction, the angles, everything. It determined all, everything that's about to happen with the structure. The cornerstone was the most important stone of the whole structure. If that wasn't laid perfectly and rightly, the rest was gonna be off. And so they did that first, but then they had all of these other stones fashioned together before they came to the site. And then when they got to the site, they'd put them together and, and there would be small, minor adjustments, but for the most part, they were able to just put them together like a big, large puzzle piece. These big old buildings out of stones. And Peter's given us this picture here of, of the cornerstone, perfectly designed and shaped and sculpted, chosen for this specific purpose, unique and alone in its ability to carry the weight of the entire structure and give direction and purpose to every other stone? Peter says, that's Jesus. And he says, he's not just the cornerstone. He is living. He is alive. He's a living 
stone because he has risen from the dead and he is alive forevermore. Romans 6 verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Jesus is a stone that has life, is life, and gives life. That's a three-point sermon, but we're moving. We're moving on from that. This just, but but he, he has life, is life, and gives life. First John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So he gives life to us as living stones. Did you see that in verse five? Peter said, sorry, I'm going, first Peter two, verse five. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus a living stone, when we are built on and in him, we become like living stones to form a spiritual house as a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We're a temple, we're priests, and we sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ, don't miss that. It all begins with him. And, and without him, it all falls apart. Peter's writing about the church. He, he's writing about us, Christians, making up the church as the body of Christ, as, as the temple of God where God can reside. And he tells us there's three things that happen here when you're being built on the living stone. First one he told us was Christ is the new true temple. And, and so now we become a temple through him. The first one was temple. But it started with Christ being the new true temple. I'm gonna explain that more in just a second, but let me, get you, let me give you these three. Number two, Christ is the great high priest. And so we become a priesthood through him. We are priests because Christ is the great high priest. And number three, Christ is the once and for all sacrifice. So we become acceptable sacrifices through him. We become acceptable sacrifices and we're able to make acceptable sacrifices through him. You know, we don't think much about how difficult it must have been for the early Christians to shift from physical to spiritual. And what I mean by that is throughout history, they knew that the presence of God resided in a place. Like they, 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 they built the temple, Solomon's temple, painstaking to, painstakingly they built it to great detail as God assigned. They, 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 they knew this. They, they knew how before that in the, in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle that traveled with the people of Israel, how, how only Moses could go inside the tent and meet with the physical, in a physical place with God's presence residing. And they knew that by the way the temple was constructed, there was a holy place 
And then there was a most holy place, the holy of holies, where the, the, the priests could only go and, and they had to be ceremonially cleansed and, and they had to be washed pure in, in ways that were exact before they went in there to offer sacrifices acceptable to God. There were so many physical representations of what it, it, the, the, the presence of God would reside in. And when Jesus came, you remember what he said in John chapter 2. This is the scripture. I'm moving very fast. I'm sorry. This is the scripture that everybody likes to use to justify their anger. You know, they call it righteous anger because this is the one where Jesus goes in the temple and he flips the tables and he makes the cord of, uh, it's a whip, and he whips and scares people and, and makes them stop selling things. And, and, and in this scripture, in this part of scripture, we see Jesus say to them, Destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They're like, how are you going to do that? They, they literally said in verse 20 of John chapter 2, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about a new temple. He was, speaking, he was speaking about a new way, a new covenant, a greater covenant established by the greater Adam. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, this is verse 22, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It made sense to them after he was risen from the dead. They started to understand, oh, on the third day he will rise and now he has made it possible for God's presence to abide by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. So this physical representation of everything that was Christianity, all of these physical things that they did and trusted in now shifted to spiritual. But you think about how difficult that must have been for them to explain, because even other religions in those days, they were dependent on physical things too. Everything was, look, look at this ceremony, look at this ritual, look at this sacrifice. This is what we go to this place to do. And Jesus, fulfilled the law and said, this is a better way. Come to me. I will give you rest. Come to me as the forerunner and the great high priest who has entered into the presence of God on your behalf, all those who have trusted in me for the forgiveness of sins. Come to me now. Come to me now. Don't, you don't have to build this anymore. Just come to me now. The disciples remembered this and they drew their confidence from his word. They saw that he had ushered in a new and better covenant. If you have time later, study Hebrews chapter nine, really seven, eight, nine, and 10 would be awesome later tonight, homework, Merry Christmas. I don't have time to read that, so just do that for you. A new, better covenant, a great high priest. So Peter goes on, he teaches that we are 
spiritual house, holy priesthood, able to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are those sacrifices? What, 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 what is that? What, what are those things that we offer that are acceptable to Christ? I did some digging and, and I want to present to you five spiritual sacrifices for us to offer. Now, in this new and better covenant, now because we come to Jesus instead of going to a temple, now because we are being made a spiritual house and we are a holy priesthood, we're not dependent on priests to go in on our behalf. We are, like, think about that. So what are these spiritual sacrifices? Number one, your body, your body. Romans 12, one through two. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, you see the language is similar to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is writing to the Romans and he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is one of the most difficult to offer. What does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice? It certainly means no less than everything you do with your body needs to be for the glory of Jesus. How are we doing? What are we offering our bodies to? Because remember, Paul reminds us in his letter to the Corinthians that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. You were, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. So what are you doing with your body? What are you giving your body to? That's number one. Number two, another spiritual sacrifice, your praise and worship. This is a little easier. We can smile about this one. This is, we offer praise and worship. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I love that. You know what this reminds me of? This, you know what this reminds me to do? It reminds me to do less singing about myself and more singing about him. That's why I love worship songs that have only to do with him. Can we introspect in worship? Oh yeah, yeah, don't let me throw that out. But it's real biblical when the whole thing's about him. We offer a sacrifice of praise to God. that he's worthy of it all. That the saints and the angels are gathering around the throne and they're, and they're in perfection in heaven and they're, all they can think about is how worthy he is. What are you giving your praise to? 
because the spiritual sacrifice, number one, is your body. Spiritual sacrifice, number two, is praise and worship. So what are you giving, offering, sacrifice, what are you giving your praise to? What are you giving your worship to? What are you worshiping? Number three, the spiritual sacrifice, number three, your service to others. Serving others. Hebrews 13, 16 says this, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And we'll read it again. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Where are we spending our time, our talents, treasures. Where is it going? Are you serving others? Because when you do from a pure heart, it's an acceptable sacrifice to God. Number three, your generosity. This is kind of similar, but not. It's a little different. I'll tell you why. Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. He's saying, thank you for what you've given me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I'm to be content. He goes on to talk about how he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And you, Philippians, yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. No other church entered into partnership with me except for you, church at Philippi. And he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable. Look at that and pleasing to God. By the way, Catherine, you're killing it. I'm jumping around and you're killing it. And my God, look at this, verse 19, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I love this text in Philippians 4. Paul says, your generosity has not returned void. Number one, it was acceptable to God as an offering. And number two, He's going to supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is his economy. This is how it works. You can't outgive God. So spiritual sacrifice number four is your generosity. Number five, spiritual sacrifice number five, your prayers. I like this. We don't think about prayers a lot of times as sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God. But scripturally, they're very much sacrifices. This is where it gets challenging because we have to consider the content of our prayers. We just sing about incense rising. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. That, that's what this is talking about. Prayers of the saints rising as a pleasing aroma, acceptable offerings to God. Look at Revelation 8, 3 and 4 really quick. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense 
to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angels. Here's where it's challenging for me. If I could say so, I think a lot of our prayers aren't sacrifices to God. A lot of our prayers aren't built that way. A lot of our prayers are full of temporal requests that have really nothing to do with his will and way, his plan. A lot of our prayers are all about us instead of all about him. Now, there are many kinds of prayers and I don't wanna discourage you. Again, just like I didn't wanna discourage you about your praise and worship, I don't wanna discourage you about your prayers, but there are sacrificial prayers to be offered as well. Go to God in prayer. Pray about everything, Paul writes. But when it comes to spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him, he does listen to those prayers that rise like incense sacrifices to him praying that his will would be done praying that our hearts would be conformed to his praying that his name and his renown would be the desire of our hearts praying that his name would be made famous in the world praying that people would be saved by his grace these are sacrifices acceptable to him Let's turn a corner here and, and come to a close. Peter knew his Old Testament very well. Verses six through eight, he quotes three verses written long before Christ. And he speaks of Christ as the stone and uses these three portions of scripture. Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 18, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14 are verses six, seven, and eight. Look at this. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16 and it was written a long time before Christ. So the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. When I first read that, I thought, a stone of stumbling. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is a stumbling block for people. Wow. A rock of offense. He's offensive. He causes people to stumble. What does that mean? <laughs> He goes on to say, they stumble because they disobey the word. So he, he causes them to stumble as they disobey the word. But we got to unpack that. Look at Acts chapter four with, with Peter preaching. Peter wrote this in his letter, but before he wrote this in his letter, he said it to their face in Acts chapter four. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of people came to about 5,000. Peter and John are preaching, and thousands are being saved. Look at verse 5. So on the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And look at what Peter said to their face, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by the way, they healed a crippled man who was over 40 years old. He'd been crippled for a long time and they healed him. If we're being judged for this, let it be known, verse 10, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you crucified, you did it, whom God raised from the dead, God did that, by him this man is standing before you well. It's by the name of Jesus that that man was healed. And by the way, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. You hear him? He's using the same language. He didn't just subtweet about it in 1 Peter 2. I'm glad you know the reference. He said it to their face in Acts chapter 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be Saved. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. And then we come to one of the most difficult doctrines and one of the most difficult texts about this doctrine when we find this phrase, as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. As they were destined to do. More literally, we can translate, they stumbled disobeying the word as they were destined to do. And then if you keep going, I want you to stay in Acts chapter four for a second. Look at what happens in verse 27 and 28. So Peter and John are preaching before all these people and thousands are being saved and the high priestly family's there and they're, they're talking to them harshly about how they were the ones who killed Jesus. And they retreat back with all their other believers and they're praying. And this is what they prayed in verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, God, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And look at this, verse 28. This is hard to understand. To do, this is what they were gathered there for. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel were gathered there to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. What was that? It was that they would reject the son and ultimately murder him. For it was the Lord's will to crush him. They're gathered here to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined for them to take place. How, how, how does that work? How does that work in two minutes? But the clock says 32 more minutes for me, so I'm good. <laughs> how does the sovereign will of God and man's will work together? How do I, Great question. Church has been debating it for hundreds of years and I'm not using that as a cop-out, but I am saying that we're not gonna solve it. I'm just gonna do my best to give you something that has really helped me understand the ununderstandable. Listen to this from Don Carson. This is, he explains this in a way that I find helpful. God's sovereignty and human accountability are mutually compatible. A lot of words. God's sovereignty and human accountability or responsibility are mutually compatible. They work together compatibly. In scripture, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never mitigates human accountability. His sovereignty never mitigates human responsibility. So, so both of them are happening. Both of them are happening. We can't go to one extreme and we can't go to the other extreme because both are happening. He is sovereign and we have responsibility. So how does it work? In scripture, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never mitigates human accountability. And in scripture, human beings are accountable, but our moral accountability never renders God a mere Reactor. Our responsibility never renders God secondary. He's not caught by surprise. He's not reacting to things that we did. I know. This is another good quote. Pastor Marcus quoted. I want to bring it back to our attention. He did this several weeks ago from A.W. Pink. I'm not jealous of his last name, but A.W., pretty cool. The, the only reason, this is what he said, the only reason why anyone believes in election, predestination, the only reason why anyone believes in election is because he finds it clearly taught in God's word. We can't, we can't move from the fact that the word says what it says. Now, now, we can't fully understand all of these things and how they work together, but we do see in Scripture that both are present. His plan, His will, His sovereignty, and our accountability, our responsibility. And Peter draws a clear contrast in our text today between believing and unbelieving. The believing and the ones who rejected Jesus. There's two responses to the stone, the cornerstone, 
There's two responses. Either you believe him or you reject him. Peter says the believing will keep coming to him. Remember where we started. As you come to him, that's a continual action. They will keep coming to him. The believing will not be put to shame, he said. They'll never be put to shame. The believing, like living stones, will be a spiritual house. The believing will be a holy priesthood. The believing will offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's one side of this contrast. The other side of this contrast, according to Peter, the unbelieving will reject Jesus. The unbelieving will stumble over Jesus. The unbelieving will be offended by the rock of offense, Jesus. The unbelieving will disobey his word. It's a clear contrast. So do you believe him? That's the question today. Do you believe him? Do you long to know him? Because you would not long to know him unless he's drawing you in. Do you believe him? Do you long to know him? Do you consider him precious? As, as God has chosen him and made him precious, do you consider him this way? If you desire him today, come. If you're thirsty for him today, come. If you're hungry, come. What do we do? Like, that's the answer. You come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Not measuring our filthiness, but just laying it before him. You come to him to be satisfied, to be filled, because in him you will find everything you need.